The Corbett Report is brought to you by the 2010 Video Archive DVD. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 23rd day of August, 2013. Welcome to episode 278 of The Corbett Report podcast, Truth Art. As longtime listeners of this podcast will know, from time to time we like to highlight the music of various artists out there that are helping to convey the information that we're bringing to you on a weekly basis here on the podcast in a musical form. Because however many facts, figures, names, dates, and articles you carefully cite to people, sometimes it is very much more effective to reach them through a different mode of communication. And what could be better than one of the oldest and most cherished forms of human communication? Music for conveying that message. Well, just as music can be used as a very powerful tool for conveying some of this, these ideas and facts about 9-11 truth and all other forms of suppressed political knowledge of our day and age, so too can the visual arts be used for that type of representation. And it's important for us today to keep in mind the potential revolutionary power of the political messages that are embedded in art. And this is not something that has escaped the attention of tyrants of years past. This is precisely why, for example, the Nazis banned Impressionist art and other forms of modern art as degenerate art that was contributing to the downfall of the pure Aryan Nazi uh, society. It's because this type of artwork does have a revolutionary uh, presence to it, a revolutionary spirit that truly can overthrow tyrants. This is why, for example, Georgi Ligeti, who is probably best known to most people out there as one of the composers that Stanley Kubrick used in in several of his movies, uh, he, he said about his music that every note was like a dagger being stabbed into the heart of Stalin. Uh, this is precisely why, for example, the CIA killed John Lennon in December of 1980, just as he was coming out of his self-imposed mini-retirement and getting active once again, and potentially politically active once again, there at the dawn of the Reagan era. Uh, That obviously couldn't be for the powers that shouldn't be, so he was taken out of that picture before he had the chance to affect the type of propaganda for peace and other campaigns that he had been running in the early 70s. Uh, We see this time and time again, and unfortunately we also see the flip side of this, which is tyrants attempting to harness that potentially revolutionary power of art for their own purposes more on which later. But today we're going to be exploring this this idea, this subject, and talking to some of the artists that are working with this medium, uh, the visual arts, in order to help spread awareness and truth, and also talk more philosophically about this subject. So very interesting uh, podcast lined up for you today, with the caveat that since this is primarily an audio podcast, also a video vodcast that's available on my website and through YouTube and the like, But since it's primarily an audio uh, podcast, uh, it's going to be somewhat difficult to try to convey the various visual arts uh, that we're going to be talking about today. So it would definitely benefit the people who are listening to this podcast right now to switch over to the video version. But don't worry, we will not make it mandatory, and we will try to describe whatever art we're talking about today on the program. 
but let's let's explore that issue in some more depth talking about the potentially revolutionary power of art and of course one of the the main ways that this has been affected throughout time going back thousands of years we can find examples of this is satire and parody which is one of the most effective forms of political protest because you can protest something until you're blue in the face but if you make fun of the tyrants if you laugh in their face if you get the people to laugh in the face of the tyranny it in some small part helps to defeat that tyranny or at least the stranglehold over the consciousness of the people and that's a very important aspect of what what can happen and what does happen through various art forms and on that very note exactly as tyrants in years past have attempted to suppress various art forms and artists in order to suppress their potentially politically revolutionary message so too is that happening with the tyrants and would-be fascists of our own day and age. Can criticism of a government agency be blocked by claiming copyright infringement? It sounds a little bit ridiculous, but it's happening. The NSA is effectively stopping one small business owner claiming that his criticism in using their name has infringed on their copyright. Can they do that? This is a reality check you're not going to see anywhere else. Well, this is a story I had a hard time believing until I looked into it for myself. Here's the backstory. Dan McCall is the owner of a company that makes snarky t-shirts. The company is called Liberty Maniacs, and they carry a number of t-shirts dealing with lack of privacy and the growing police state. They sell on a site called Zazzle.com. None of it's been a problem until Liberty Maniacs released this shirt called The NSA. The image looks like the NSA logo, but has a motto that is clearly a pun, peeping while you're sleeping, followed by the phrase, the NSA, the only part of the government that actually listens. Shortly after going online, Zazzle pulled the shirt from its website, sending this message. Thank you for publishing products on Zazzle. Unfortunately, it appears that your product, the NSA, contains content that is in conflict with one or more of our acceptable content guidelines. We will be removing this product from the Zazzle marketplace shortly. Policy notes. Design contains an image or text that may infringe on intellectual property rights. We have been contacted by the intellectual property right holder and we will be removing your product from Zazzle's marketplace due to infringement claims. Dan McCall, the owner of Liberty Maniac, spoke with me via Skype and says there were multiple items dealing with the NSA that were pulled down from Zazzle. These two, and then a number, probably four or five bumper stickers and things like that. Anything basically remotely relating to the NSA um, was taken down. And, and I'm not sure if that was, you know, subsequently a blanket policy that Zazzle themselves had put up just because they didn't want to deal with the hassle and they didn't want to spend their time interpreting each thing, knowing that they would run into problems. Um, or it was something that they actually, you know, they were plugged into NSA legal, you know, and they, and they were kind of watching things as they go. Now that's a report from Ben Swan, and I will of course put the link in the show notes so you can go and continue watching that report, but he does go on to make the point specifically that parody and satire is a protected form of free speech under the First Amendment and has been consistently ruled so throughout the history of the United States. So that the idea that the NSA can come along and stop people from making parodies of their logo, well, doesn't have a judicial leg to stand on. And I would venture to say that anything that's from a government agency that is supposedly uh, by and for the people, the idea that they can copyright their logos and prevent the people from using that is 
well, to my mind, ridiculous and preposterous on its face. But then again, well, perhaps this is a an effective way of demonstrating the tyranny that we're living in, that even trying to make fun of the NSA is against the rules. So uh, awareness of that story is important, and I'm going to be attempting to line up uh, Dan McCall from uh, LibertyManiacs.com in order to talk more about that interesting little tidbit that's emerged uh, from from their attempt to, to satirize the NSA. So more on that in the future. But in the meantime, we're going to talk to a different visual artist who's also using well, not, not, well, parody, satire, humor of various forms in his artwork to try to convey the, the grim reality of the situation we're living in, in a way that will uh, sneak past people's intellectual defenses in some ways. And I'm referring to Peter Santamaria, who is available at attacktheplanet.com. He's also on Twitter, at attackpeter. I hope people will check out his artwork. Uh, again, it is some fascinating stuff that really does touch, I think, on some chords. He makes use of pop culture material and uh, and parody and the like to to really create a, a pieces that get people talking. And I think you'll know what I mean when you uh, check out his artwork. So on the screen for the vodcast uh, viewers, we'll show some of his artwork now uh, from, and I would direct people to a, a very interesting uh, piece that uh, We Are Changed did uh, a little while ago on Peter and his artwork. I'll uh, put that link in the show notes to that so people can check that out because it was a very well done short introduction to his art. But he uh, uses some very recognizable pop culture iconography, including uh, Marvel Comics characters like the uh, the face of uh, Captain America with the message, 9-11 was an inside job, or the face of Iron Man and the message, war is a racket, uh, the face of the Incredible Hulk and the message, Hulk smash GMOs, and the face of Spider-Man uh, with the message, don't trust the media. Or there's uh, other uh, artwork that he's done pr- um, parodying the TSA, Total Sexual Assault, or uh, talking about the the uh, the gun uh, gun control versus the uh, fast and furious type uh, Mexican drug gangs and the like versus the psychotropic uh, drugged up uh, gun killers. Um, Very uh, just fascinating artwork that comes with a political message. And earlier this week, I had the chance to interview Peter Santamaria for my website. So I'll put the link, of course, into the show notes of that interview so you can go and listen to it in its entirety. But why don't we take a listen to a little bit about uh, Peter and his artwork and how he has been inspired to pursue this. Okay, well, let's get straight into it. You are, as I say, a practicing artist. You've got some very interesting art up on your uh, on your website. Why don't we start by talking just a little bit about yourself and your background, where you come from, and how you got started into uh, into your career? Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm born in Virginia, raised in Miami, Florida, uh, Cuban American, uh, and my, my whole life I've known the story of what happened in Cuba under the. Uh, the revolution of Fidel Castro. Uh, my family was very linked into it. My grandfather was a journalist uh, at the time, and we ha- have some great photos of him, you know, with a group of journalists kind of huddled around Fidel and uh, and Che Guevara. So I always knew, I always had an inside view of it. And uh, my grandfather was one of the people who actually, you know, realized that this was going to be trouble in Cuba and packed up his wife, his new wife, and my mother, who was five, and my aunt, who was seven, and just got wind of it and realized we better get out of here. And I say that because there were a lot of people who thought, well, this will be fine, or this is going to be great. So I have a lot of respect and love for the fact that 
you know, two generations ago, somebody was able to smell uh, the trouble and probably in the face of his peers who said, oh, you're overreacting, oh, you know. And so to me, it's always been, before I was even uh, paying attention to anything geopolitically, I almost feel like that was instinct into me to question and to be uh, hesitant and and upset and bothered by anybody who would try to have so much power over me. Uh, so I was obviously a pain in the butt growing up in school. Uh, I didn't like, you know, I didn't like ha being told what to do, but I didn't know why I was doing it. So, uh, but always I had a good sense of humor. And so growing up, um, I actually played a lot of music and bands. And it wasn't until I, my mom met uh, my stepfather, uh, who was uh, had arrived from Cuba recently uh, at the time, which is I was 15 years old, so 15 years ago. Um, that I started to pay more attention again. He was actually a political prisoner in Cuba for making films and artwork protesting the Castro regime. So it's amazing. To me, it's so bizarre like how everything kind of lines up. Well, uh, again, I hope people are taking a look at attacktheplanet.com so they can check out your work as we're talking here. But uh, let's talk about some of these pieces in particular. And I'd like to start with the Marvel Comics characters with their political slogans. It's obviously quite a, quite a powerful and quite a simple uh, message there. But let's talk about that idea and where it came from. You know, what's funny is, like I said, I know, first of all, that some of the messages to mainstream people are already going to be preloaded with uh, context. For example, saying 9-11 was an inside job now is almost, uh, it's almost like a meme that has lost its meaning. It's almost like uh, when um, Andy Warhol used to do those reproductions of Marilyn Monroe's head. The point of that was to say, yeah, this is Marilyn Monroe, but as soon as I started repeating it over and over and over and over and over again, it's not Marilyn Monroe. It's just this image that loses its meaning after a while. So the reality of it is anybody who's intelligent, in my opinion, is going to look at the 9-11 official story and say there's more to this than, I can, uh, than is being told. However, it is so difficult to engage intelligent people who disagree with you because you've been painted and cast almost be pre, you know, in advance of the conversation. Uh, so you can't really communicate that. So to me, it's so obnoxious that that's the case that I figure the only way <laughs> – to break that ice is to start obnoxiously and using humor and being kind of uh, a pain in the butt about it. So that image of Captain America is not just any Captain America image, it's the classic Jack Kirby, uh, classic age of comics, specifically chosen because in, in itself is revered. If Captain America and comics are revered to people as Americana or some sacred part of their childhood, well this specific depiction of them is even more revered. So I had to pick that one. And then putting that quote underneath, to me, on one layer, it means, it's so interesting, like, what would it really mean if there were people who were vigilantes and, you know, rogues? Would they be talking about these things? So then they really would be cast out by society if he was really a patriot. You know, that whole, you know, nerdy spiel you can get into if you're a fan of uh, the, the medium. And then I'm thinking, at the same time, this is like, is part of my childhood and has been hijacked. Because now I look back and I say, what I used to read and be like, oh, this is so great. I wish I could kick the bad guy's butts and, you know, anti-Nazi and all that kind of thing. It's like this Disney image now, okay, is what it is. It's like Mickey Mouse ears. And as fun as the movies and the comics can be, it's empty. It's empty and it's empty calories. 
it's like junk food. You can enjoy it, but it's not the only thing you can sustain yourself on. So to me, I liked the idea of, and, and, and just to, I should say that I was preparing to do my first ever comic book convention uh, when I was making these pieces. So I was like, how can I fit into this comic book art world and not leave behind my political influences? And I was on the phone with my friend Brian Reedy, another fantastic artist here in Miami, who I work with on the website. And I said, Brian, what can we do? Because we have a similar sense of humor. What can I do that would be so obnoxious and ridiculous, but at the same time might get me a chance to start having good conversations with people in the convention? That's that's those comic book conventions are notorious. You look at Comic Con for being these like dens of like uh, bizarreness and 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 arrested development. And there's fantastic art and content, but it's always overshadowed by this idea of consumerism and and just weird stuff and I and I hate that because I like the artwork and the production of the actual artist so I want to be there I want to infiltrate the people that I grew up around and I'd like to go into the consumerist bubble and break in with this because you know we have these conversations and we're going to nod back and forth to each other like yep 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 and and we're almost like we're in this loop so our goals are to get outside and bring people in get outside and affect pop culture. That's where it is. That's, that's where you get people's attention. There's a contest right now to make Obamacare palatable to kids, I think, right? Uh, the White House just released some video contests. It's all about affecting pop culture, affecting the youth. So it's a propaganda war. I want to fight in the propaganda war. And so these images I thought were funny, but they were pertinent at the same time. And to me, like I was saying in the beginning, 9-11 was an inside job. At this point, it's almost more of a trouble starter, troublemaker. Let's start. Let's talk. Uh, let's just get off the. I, I know you think I'm nuts because I say this, but let's talk about it. And putting it together, it, you have to laugh. You have to stop. You have to talk. The best comment I ever got from. I mean, I got tons of people walking by and buying it. And oh man, this is so awesome and cool. Thanks for putting this here. Yada yada yada. And then I get the my favorite comments of. Uh, I like to burn that effing thing to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm just like, fantastic, sir, buy it first and you can burn it all to the ground. <laughs> and so that's the idea. It's like, I want to laugh. I want to laugh because, uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes growing up, I forgot where I first heard it, but it's stuck with me forever. If you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you from Oscar Wilde. And nothing could be truer in my life, whether it's my personal job, uh, my uh, day job as a teacher, a high school teacher, with other staff members and administrators, whether it's in the political sphere, whether it's with other artists. I mean, one of the hard parts about my job is that, as, as an artist, is just the majority of artists that I'd like to share and network with are very upset about the fact that I make these kind of statements. So whereas the artist used to be the tip of the spear and the artist used to be you know, challenging the status quo, it's almost like they're just as walled off as anything else. And that's another challenge that I have. So I have to use humor to break down those barriers. Once again, that's the engaged and engaging Peter Santamaria of attacktheplanet.com. So I will once again invite listeners to check out his artwork at his website, 
um, some very, very fascinating stuff that he's doing there. And I think effectively sticking, or at least saying truth to power, sticking it to the man, as it were, in visual art form and in a way that's humorous and playful and gets people gets people's attention and gets people talking, which I think is the most we can ask for from this type of work. And on that note, there's, uh, of course, more serious attempts at, at doing this type of, of work of getting people interested in topics and, and getting them to experience and understand topics in a new way. And in that respect, let's talk a little bit about photojournalism, because, of course, ever since the dawn of photography in the 19th century, photojournalism has been a way of helping people to understand the world around them, sometimes to misunderstand the world around them, and sometimes deliberately, but still, it has had a profoundly important effect in shaping our understanding of that world, of the world around us. And we can look at some of the iconic photographs of the 20th century, for example. We could think of the uh, the napalm girl photo of, from uh, 1972, of the aftermaths of a napalm attack, which has been one of those uh, iconic photographs that has been burned into the collective memory and had its own part to play in helping to shape the the, the protest movement of uh, against the Vietnam War and people's understanding of what was really happening there. Or we could look at uh, the iconic Afghan girl uh, photograph, for example, which appeared on the uh, cover of National Geographic in June 1985 and has helped to uh, shape people's understanding of Afghanistan. Of course, at that time, Afghanistan was the... Um, well, the centerpiece of propaganda against the Soviet Union, and oh, look what the Soviets are doing to Afghanistan. And then, lo and behold, uh, less than 20 years later, when it came time for the United States to try to invade Afghanistan, the the Afghan girl picture again started to to surface in the collective memory as a as a way of helping to to sponsor the idea that the Afghan war was really about helping the women of Afghanistan. That's really what that that war and occupation. 11-year, 12-year now uh, long occupation of that country has been about, really. It's, it's all been about helping the women. And of course, this, uh, this photograph has been a large part of that propaganda campaign. And uh, so again, the, the photo, photojournalism can help to shape our understanding and also very much misinform us of what the world and the way that it's working. And there are various examples of that and how photographs have been manipulated and or cropped and or fabricated in order to get people to believe certain things. So it definitely has the power to, uh, to shape people's minds uh, either for the good or for the bad. So it's a fascinating and perhaps somewhat neglected part of the, the visual art and especially as it comes to uh, shaping our understandings of politics. So it's in that very uh, regard that I had the chance to talk to Niall Bowie of nihilbowie.blogspot.com back in November of last year, back when uh, I went to Kuala Lumpur for the 9-11 conference. I, of course, got to meet Niall Bowie there, and we recorded a, a fascinating little talk where he showed some of his photographs and shared that and, and talked about his photographs as he does not only writing for RT and Counterpunch and other outlets, but he also does photojournalism. And in fact, that's that's really kind of his uh, his start and what got him started uh, with his website and everything. So uh, so I would, again, of course, uh, invite people to go to nihilbowie.blogspot.com to check out some of his photojournalism. And this video, which has now been collecting dust on my shelf for nine months now, I'm going to uh, dust off and actually uh, put out in its entirety uh, later this weekend so people can look forward to that. And, and take a look at some of these photographs and we'll go over it in, in more detail. But right now, let's just listen to a bit of our conversation that I recorded uh, talking a little bit about the photojournalism and its shape in, in its role in shaping our perception of society. 
So, uh, so let's talk a little bit about photojournalism and how you got into it. Certainly. All right. Well, um, basically, I come from an artistic background. Uh, both my parents are uh, are art photographers, and um, being in that environment as a child, you know, being constantly uh, going back and forth to my parents' studio and uh, seeing the kind of work they shot a lot of homeless people. Uh, it's more artistic. It's done in a studio, whereas mine is a uh, journalistic in nature and done out in the field. Um, but I was exposed to that from a young age, and um, I've always found uh, photographs to be a very visual form. Uh, obviously, it's visual, but a very effective form of communication, Prim primarily because humans have an easier time uh, perceiving things if it communicates to them on an emotional level. For example, like uh, just the way products are sold. You can have a product that lists all the factual you know, benefits of it in a logical way, or you could have something that you know, is pushed, how products are pushed today in an emotional way, and the, uh, the latter tends to work better. So with uh, photography, you have a lot of power in that aspect. And uh, with photojournalism, specifically, you have the power to uh, really shape public opinion. So it's a very, very uh, uh, useful tool in many ways, and that can be used to end wars or to push them. You know, and we're seeing that, uh, you know, uh, especially with what's going on in Africa, with, with, with what's going on in, in Syria and, and in Gaza right now, and in many different ways. It, it, all of these things in their own way tell some aspect of the story. Now, as a photojournalist, uh, I have basically done my part. I'm now beginning to publish stories with, uh, with news agencies like Russia Today, for example. I really like to do my part in um, putting captions that I think really represent a different side, a more alternative side of the, of the paradigm, because I, I don't really want to be someone who works for Al Jazeera or CNN and, uh, you know, you can take photographs of Syria, for example, uh, and you can put captions on them, you know, uh, which, which completely uh, uh, reflect perhaps the photographer's point of view or could reflect the uh, editorial policy of the, of the agency. So um, uh, I think I've been rambling on for about a minute. Do you have any other follow-up <laughs> yeah. follow -up Well, I, that's a good point because uh, people might remember BBC um, a couple of years ago, just as one example, cropped a uh, pro-Ahmadinejad rally and pretended it was an anti-Ahmadinejad rally, even though you can see Ahmadinejad in the uncropped picture waving to the crowd. So, that, I mean, obviously, the way that they present the photo changes the shape. But, but are there any photojournalists that you look up to or any particular iconic shots that you... Well... There's one particular individual, James Noctway, who's an American uh, from New York, I believe, uh, and he has covered um, major, uh, major issues in uh, the Balkans and, and in uh, Central Africa. He, he photographed uh, the Rwanda genocide, and uh, seeing those photos, uh, my parents uh, purchased one of his books, and I had just picked up the book on the shelf one day when I was uh, young, and I, I really was not someone who paid attention to world affairs as a young child. I mean. Uh, so looking through these photos really uh, sparked my interest. You know, what was the first initial reaction you get is, "What is happening here? I mean, what what led to this?" You know, and and uh, from there, uh, several years ago, I don't know exactly when, but that got me into um, trying to understand conflicts, uh, social conflicts, and, uh, and political conflicts, and uh, uh, and seeing the end result of it. Obviously, as you can imagine. Uh, can be tra quite traumatic, some of the images that, that he has photographed in various parts of the world. So that really pushed me. Uh, the fact that uh, this man went to uh, parts of the world where you know genocide had just taken place and actually captured it and captured all the things that you would cringe to look away with. Uh, I mean, they're not photos you're going to hang in your house, but they serve a very important 
purpose, you know? Well, the, uh, the, the value of photographs from an artistic perspective is obvious, but um, from a photojournalistic perspective, uh, what do you think about the, the developments in technology and sort of the, the growth of online video, etc.? How is that affecting the, the possibility for photojournalism? Well, I think um, it's an interesting question. I think uh, as technology is changing and it's become basically becoming possible to take photographs of something and have it online straight away, in some way what we're seeing this used as in conflicts like in Syria, for example, we're seeing this used as kind of... Um, uh, the, the Twitter user or the, uh, the activist, say, being the reliable, you know, just a cell phone uh, footage and whatever, being the reliable kind of a source of information. And there's actually, I believe, a very poor um, uh, reporting uh, methods of work. And I think in many ways it's a good thing, uh, primarily because the cost is lower. Uh, overall, you don't have to go through the hassle of, uh, you know, developing your, your, your film and uh, and whatever else. I mean, there are pros and negatives to it, but personally, I have never shot with uh, with with film. I've only used digital, and uh, uh, my my parents are on the on the film edge of things. And uh, to be honest, digital is easier to work with. You know, it it does take away the aesthetic value of some of the shots in some way, but in some way, digital uh, captures things that you can't get on film in, in a different way. You know, uh, and, I, and I believe right now there's just more possibility to work with digital film, and I think. Uh, you know, I, I think technology is a double-edged sword in a very big way. And uh, personally, I'm quite happy with the direction things are going into. And, and right now, uh, for example, I, I am in a position where I can push myself as, as a photojournalist, despite not really being acknowledged by the BBC or, or whomever, you know. Right. Well, all of that is, is you raise some very good points. But in fact, my, my question was actually the, the exact other way around. I, I, certain, well, no, it's interesting that you bring that perspective because the way I see it with the, the growth of the online independent media is more focused around videography because everything, everyone has a, a, a basically a camera, a video camera in their pockets, a cell phone or whatever these days. So it's becoming more and more I see the transition from a photographic to a videographic hmm. culture. Do you think there's the possibility that photographs as that type of medium will start to diminish? In, in uh, perhaps. I mean, you're always going to need photographs. There's always going to be some kind of um, uh, text-based uh, medium, whether it's on a newspaper or on an iPad or a Kindle or whatever. Uh, there's, you're always going to have that. And I think... Uh, I don't think photographs are really going to lessen in influence, but certainly a, a video is just, I guess, the most accessible way for people to perceive things. You know, and it is the most effective way for pe people to perceive things. And um, personally, you know, my my camera has full video capabilities, but I really don't like to use it. I really prefer pictures. I like looking at things and taking my own time to kind of absorb them. And and I think uh, what you have with video is, of course, you know, a great possibility to build documentaries and to to explain things in great detail. Um, however, with photographs, what you have is really the ability to really connect, capture a moment, and uh, to really speak to people uh, in a very deep way. And I think that that is what photographs have done to me, and that is why I have picked up a camera. Once again, Niall Bowie of nilbowie.blogspot.com, and more of that video will be coming out this weekend. We'll leave it there for now, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll go into that in more depth on my YouTube channel this weekend, and so I hope people will check that out as we go into some of his uh, photographs specifically and talk about them in more detail. 
But uh, I, this is uh, all very fascinating and very important. And there are many, many more examples of artists out there that are doing work along these lines, satirizing the current uh, police state and tyranny and or pointing out uh, other forms of political possibility, um, representing 9-11 truth, all these sorts of things. And we could talk about many of those people. I mean, just as one example, Paul Jamiol, who does the excellent editorial cartoons at BoilingFrogsPost.com. And if you purchase one of the Boiling Frogs Post DVDs, you'll uh, on each DVD there's a, a different reel of various uh, Paul Jamiel editorial cartoons that are well worth looking into. They're they're absolutely beautifully done. They're they're wonderfully done, um, very much to the point, and uh, very darkly funny. A lot of them satirizing the police state that unfortunately America has become. Well, uh, but uh, with all of that excellent work that the various artists are doing, there is, of course, a dark flip side to this that I've mentioned a couple of times now and I think needs exploring in greater detail. And that is the idea that if art and, and visual arts specifically can be very effective for communicating truths, they can also be equally effective for drumming untruths, lies, into the minds of the public. And, of course, this is propaganda, and propaganda's power as a political tool is nothing new to our jaded and cynical 21st century mind, but back when it was really starting to be used in a scientific way in the early parts of the 20th century, and as it started to develop more as a, as a field of, of psychological control, it was still something that uh, that was not really understood by a large section of the society, and thus a lot of people were susceptible to it. And unfortunately, even now, a century later, as that we've been inundated with now generations worth of propaganda materials in various forms, unfortunately, the public is, if anything, even more asleep to the, the types of propaganda that we're being inundated with on a daily basis. This is obviously a, a terrible state of affairs because it takes that wonderful creative power of art and harnesses it for the purposes of, well, death and destruction. And of course, I mean, we can look at all sorts of examples of that through through the centuries. But of course, from last century, we can look at uh, the, the Nazis, who, of course, brilliantly did a lot of propaganda displays. Uh, Hitler, having been a failed artist himself, certainly understood the power of symbolism and uh, and the types of propagandistic displays of visual uh, cues and visual power that, that were possible for, for really helping to shape a society and shape that pu public's mindset. Unfortunately, that still goes on today with, uh, in just a slicker, more entertaining form with the various f forms of Hollywood propaganda and the like. So it's in this regard that uh, earlier today uh, here in Japan, I managed to talk to John Rappaport of nomorefakenews.com, and people might remember him from some of our previous conversations that are available in the archives on CorbettReport.com. But today we talked specifically about something that may not be so well known to people who know him for, from his writings on political matters, is that, in fact, John is himself a visual artist who's had his uh, paintings displayed uh, in galleries in Los Angeles and New York. He's also a poet who's had his uh, poetry published by the Massachusetts Review. So he, art is something that's close uh, to his heart and something that he does write about from time to time on his blog at johnrappaport.wordpress.com. So recently we had the chance to talk about and, and have a very fascinating conversation about art and consciousness and reality and how these things intersect. And uh, unfortunately, of course, we also had to explore the idea of propaganda and how that the creative powers of art can be harnessed 
for political evil. So let's take a listen to just a short uh, extract from this conversation, although of course I will direct you to the full conversation on CorbettReport.com so you can listen to the entire conversation in its, uh, in its full context because it is a fascinating bit of philosophy and art and history all coming together. So let's take a listen to this uh, conversation with John Rappaport. The avalanche of science fiction movies in Hollywood that all involve gigantic invasions from other realms, you know, of monsters, uh, machine-like monsters in many cases, or insectoid-type monsters that, you know, how do we ever defeat them, and so on and so forth. Now, some people think this is predictive programming in the sense that it's setting the stage for an actual alien invasion from outer space. Maybe. Uh, I think the way I plug into this is it's predictive in the sense that it is conditioning the public to believe that the future is going to be locked down completely tight. That there is no fighting against such a force. I mean, you could defeat it temporarily here and there, but, you know, the takeover is going to happen regardless, and there's no use fighting at all. You can do is find your niche in it. It's not so much the power of any one of these movies, but it's just the cumulative on and on and on of one invasion movie after another that kind of settles people into this frame of mind, which I think is, um, you know, effective propaganda. And it's uh, a, a form of art, to be sure. Well, certainly dystopian fiction um, is uh, is much more common than, than its opposite, and we are constantly presented with examples of worlds in which people are locked down and told what to do and oppressed in various ways, and it's always some sort of narrative about someone fighting back against that system and the like, but, but you're right, the overwhelming impression is that the future will un- almost inver- inevitably be this, this type of lockdown system of, of complete control. And, uh, and it really does start to, to manifest in reality in various ways that some of them perhaps may, may be coincidental, others are not. And when you look at something like uh, a Minority Report, um, people have seen over the last several years story after story after story after story in the news media saying, well, you know that thing they showed you in Minority Report? Well, now <laughs> yeah. it's a reality. Right. And specifically in that case, it's interesting to look at because Spielberg, um, in the creation of that movie, convened a little mini conference, um, including some of the, the, the cutting edge researchers in engineering and architecture and, and the like, to come together to actually create what they called the Bible of the future 2042 or whatever year it's supposed to be. And they created this document that was supposed to be the, their best guesses of, of exactly what the world will look like in, in the next 30 or 40 years. And lo and behold, all these technologies that they were writing about are suddenly coming to, to into reality. So... They're creating the world that they that they want for their corporate masters, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. This is the stuff I don't like. This kind of, like, working the way Spielberg did here. This, I mean, because this is obviously imagination in the service of something else. The difference between seeing that movie, Minority Report, and, I mean, there were good pieces in it and so forth, but, and reading... The raw words of, say, uh, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, of Philip Dick, that novel, is the difference between feeling like you've got your hands on a live wire of electric life force, you know, which is 
waking up to bigger consciousness and looking down some sort of tunnel that is narrowing into the way things are going to be. To me, that is the difference between night and day. It just isn't even close. And for those artists who try to do that, okay, let's put people in a tunnel, you see. This is what we want to do to the audience. And then we narrow it down and we just invoke more and more fear. And then, yeah, the hero sort of wins at the end, but we leave them with this impression. Spielberg has always loved to frighten people in his movies. You know, he just gets off on that. Jaws, you know, uh, and that sort of thing. Poltergeist, all that, you know. Let's just scare the hell out of everybody, you know. And really, uh, that's just horrific as far as I'm concerned. The idea is to open it all up and to show that freedom and the individual really are powerful. It's not just, oh, one guy just managed to crawl out of the you know, crater and uh, we'll see what happens. No. No, it's, it's, that's not the way it goes. The reason that there's so much propaganda in this world the reason is because it's necessary. And the reason it's necessary is that because within the individual, there is this tremendous energy about freedom. And if there weren't, you could take three PR guys out of Washington and just say, okay, we'll give you six weeks to hypnotize the whole country and it'll ball be over. It just doesn't work that way. Once again, John Rappaport of nomorefakenews.com. In a fascinating conversation about the depths of reality and art and the creation of uh, consciousness and the molding of perceptions, very, very important topic to keep in mind when we deal with the power of the visual arts and art generally, of course, because once again, we are dealing with very powerful, very fundamental modes of communication that speak directly to the heart of the human experience that has developed over the course of millennia. And when you start tapping into that power, it is a fundamental, uh, fundamentally uh, moving force that can, again, be used either for good, for the dissemination of truth, for the, under the, the, the dissemination of understandings of the way the world is really working and what is possible. It is also, of course, equally uh, usable for the purposes of evil and for shaping our perceptions to well, through the practice of predictive programming, which we've talked about many times here on the program, to prepare people for tyranny and to condition them to accept it when it comes. So, of course, visual arts play a key role in shaping our understanding of the world around us, and it's important for us to support those people who are, like Peter Santamaria and Paul Jamiol and Niall Bowie and, and all the other people who are out there working in this form, format, uh, it's important that we support their work and what they're doing as they, uh, as they help to spread this message even further. Because again, we have to understand that no matter how important it is to do what we do here on the podcast with the, the dry recitation of facts and figures and dates and laying out uh, the, the, uh, the sort of ABCs of all of this, it's equally important for people to be reaching out on different levels and speaking to people's conscious and subconscious and, and reaching them in, in, through modes of communication that, uh, that things like this podcast simply can't. So uh, whatever uh, art you, you prefer yourself, I hope that you're uh, helping to propagate it and uh, hopefully to create it as well. I think it's uh, something that is another incredible aspect of the age that we're living in is that the internet has leveled the playing field for so many different things, including visual art, so that visual artists now have potentially an audience of millions or tens of millions if they have the right image. And again, that can be used for good. It can also be used to spread memes that are not so good, like Shepard Fairey's uh, famous uh, hope 
uh, image of Barack Obama. Well, at any rate, I think we're going to leave things there for today, but uh, we will leave things uh, with an excellent artist, again, that I'd like to direct people to. His name is Mir One. He's a graffiti artist who helps to spread uh, some just fascinating imagery that helps to, I think, spread the awareness of some of these issues that we talk about on a regular basis. Again, to people who might not be expecting it in various ways that they might not be expecting it, but in ways that are powerful and very difficult to to dismiss. So I hope people will check into Mir One and his various artwork. We're going to be watching, for the video viewers of this vodcast, we're going to be watching the creation of one of his, uh, his mosaics uh, called The Allegory of Conspiracy. And that's a video that's on available on YouTube, so I'll direct people there. And for the people who are listening, you can enjoy the music that accompanies this video at any rate. And we'll leave things there for today. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, reminding you that this program is brought to you by you, so I do appreciate all the support of the people out there who help to make this possible, either monetarily or through simply spreading the word about this podcast. And on that note, we'll leave things there, and thank you once again for listening. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. philosopher named Plato. It was called the Allegory of the Cave, and it consisted of a group of slaves that sat on a log in a cave with a blazing fire behind them. Their captors made hand signals in the light of the fire cast onto the wall in front of these slaves, and these slaves believed that that shadow and that wall was their reality. One day, while the captors were away, one of the slaves unchained himself and stood up and saw there was a light at the end of the cave. And so he went to it, and he poked his head out and saw there was an entire world outside, full of light and life, freedom and air. He quickly ran back to his brethren slaves and told them. But out of fear, they shook their heads. They were complacent. They told him to sit down before he got them in trouble.